0: blink of an eye it goes by and then there are other people that look at 26 years and it's like man that's a lifetime and uh, and, and I look at it both ways you know uh, some in some respects you know it seems like you know things from 26 years ago opening Sunday still vivid in my mind like it just happened a couple of weeks ago but then in other ways you know I think about all the things that you know have happened and all the decisions for Christ that have been made over the years, and and all the weddings, and all the funerals, and all of this. And it seems like it's been a long time. You know, just for the record, I want to make something very clear. Any celebration, you know, whether it be clapping, or decorations, or or breakfast burritos, or any celebration regarding 26 years, uh, you need to know the thing, that we are celebrating is the faithfulness of God. That's what it's about, okay? Um, you know, back back in the mid-90s when Crossroads started, um, you know, we broke multiple rules. And, uh, you know, you weren't supposed to start a church from scratch if you didn't have a court group already in place. Uh, you weren't supposed to start a church if you didn't have a mother church. Because the success rates are much higher if you have a mother church. I mean, there there were several things like that that were like, okay, well, we're not really following the rules. And, you know, and and churches that started from scratch like what we did, their success rate isn't very impressive. But yet here we are 26 years later. And I attribute that totally to the faithfulness of God. He had mercy on us. To begin with, you know, as we first got started, and he has been the one who has led and sustained us, you know, all of these years. And uh, uh, Crossroads wouldn't be here today and wouldn't be what it is had it not been for the Lord. So we are celebrating him. As a matter of fact, I think it'd be a very appropriate way for us, for me, to begin the message is with having a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for you. And we're so grateful for, for your continued presence in our lives. And, and some of the people that are represented here right now at this moment, either watching online or, or right here in the building, uh, were a part of things 26 years ago when we first got started. Um, and then everyone else it has been somewhere along the line that have joined your family here at Crossroads. Uh, Lord, I thank you for each and every one. I thank you that you stirred through your spirit in their heart and prompted them to be a part of this and to be a part of this family. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace and your guidance, your blessing that has made possible this church and, and all the, the fruit that has come from it over the years. We look forward to the days to come and your continued blessing. In Christ's name, I pray, Amen. All right, the thing that we are told nowadays is that the world's population is seven point nine billion people. That's kind of a hard number to wrap your mind around, you know. Um, you know, unless. Um, You're talking about someone's bank account, and I won't mention, but he's sitting over there in the fourth row on the inside aisle. Um, You know, he he knows what these kind of numbers mean. But uh, 7.9 billion people. I I can remember when I was a teenager. uh, The population of the world, we were told, turned 4 billion. You know, and we're just a couple years away from that number being doubled. That was when I was a teenager. You know, and now here it is, what, 12 years later? And, uh, you know, and it's about 8 billion people. That's a lot of people. The uh, population of the United States, we're told, is 331 million people. Now, that's just a small fraction of 7.9 billion, but all the same, 331 million. I mean, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. Well, the reason I point out how many people there are in our country and in the world is I want you to think of that when you read this verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Who does everyone refer to? 7.9 billion people. You know, if you're looking in closer proximity, 331 million people people man that is a tall order the word possible that is found here in the original language it, it expresses the idea of something that is potentially difficult but nonetheless doable okay that's that's what that word means possible something that is potentially difficult but nonetheless doable but if you look at the beginning of it, it, it puts on the front end of that the word if. And so basically what it is saying is it's casting a shadow on whether or not it is truly doable. And so the basic thrust is maybe this is attainable, maybe it's not attainable. You know, what, what Paul is saying here. Maybe it's attainable, maybe it's not. But all the same, we need to give it our best shot. That's what this verse I believe is communicating. Now you and I, we know that it always takes two people to tangle, right? I mean, it's not just one person. So you don't have control of the entire situation in any kind of a relationship, but you can do the best that you can do on your end of things. But still, this is an awful lot to bite off, especially with that broad brushstroke of 7.9 billion people. So let's narrow this down a little bit, even beyond the United States. And let's today, as we talk about this particular subject, let's narrow it down and let's talk about our family, okay? Now that's, you can wrap your mind around that, right? Now all of our families are at different stages right now. Um, Some of you in here, your family is like my family. We're in the middle of that stage of the empty nest time where kids have moved out. There are others of you who are in that stage where you're right in the middle of child rearing. Right now, you're in the thick of it, you know, as far as children and keeping them corralled and kind of pointing them in the right direction and all that. And then there are some others that are in the room that are at the very front end of all of this just getting started with their families. Regardless of what stage, I think we all have this one thing in common. We want healthy families. You know, whether you're at the empty nest, you're at that end of things, or whether you're at the beginning. We all want healthy families. And I don't mean by that Um, physically healthy. I mean, that's kind of a given that we all want everyone to be physically healthy. I'm talking about relationally healthy. We all want healthy families. I grew up uh, pretty naive as far as that goes. I just assumed a lot of things. In fact, I was reflecting on it earlier and I could not think, Thus far, I haven't been able to come up with someone um, that was among my circle of friends that whose parents were divorced when I was growing up. You know, so I, I, I never really had a close-up look at what that was like. Um, and in my family, that was never, never an issue. And, oh, sure, I fought with my brothers and sisters, but, but uh, we were a healthy family. It wasn't until the latter part of the 1980s i was in my 20s that i really had my eyes open to how unhealthy a family can be as far as relationships i was living in illinois at the time serving in a church out there one in which i spent a little over 10 years of my life serving in and uh, um And the culture is definitely different than it is uh, here. And it may be different out there now, too. And some of you will recall a time where you grew up where this was the case, that uh, uh, back when I was serving in the church in Illinois, um, I would go calling, that's what we called it, calling, several nights a week. And what that meant was I would go to people's homes. Once every great while, I would call ahead of time and find out, hey, you're going to be there. If I knew it was an exceptionally busy family on the go a lot, I would give a phone call to make sure they were going to be home. But the vast majority of the time, I just dropped in. But that's what preachers did. you know. And it was just understood. Very seldom did you really surprise somebody. Even the non-church people, they just understood. Preachers, this is what they do. They just drop in. You know, and so that was something I would do on multiple nights of the week. Well, anyway, this one particular week, I was out uh, making a couple of calls uh, on folks. And I uh, was about eight miles from my home where the church was at. And I was in the biggest town of the county, the county seat. About 3,000 people uh, lived in this town. And uh, I had my radio on. And this is another small-town America thing that some of you won't be able to relate to. But, but back in those days, every morning and every evening on the local radio, they would announce who all was admitted into the hospital, you know, that day or the previous day, and who all was dismissed from the hospital. I mean, people wanted to know that, and so there wasn't any right to privacy sort of thing. They just They just announced that. And so I had the radio on and they were going through some of the names of people who had been dismissed from the hospital that week. And then they mentioned Bob so-and-so. And And I was like, what? I know Bob so-and-so. I got to do this because this is live streamed. Hey, Bob, if you're listening. Um, But, uh, you know, it was Bob so-and-so was released from the hospital. And I was just like, what? Bob never came to church. I tried and tried and tried to get Bob to come to church. In fact, I had dropped in on their home multiple times, you know, trying to influence Bob. His wife and his son came regularly. But anyway, so I knew Bob real well. And Bob so-and-so just got uh, discharged from the uh, hospital after having spent several days there that's that's what the radio announcement was and I just like okay I got to go by Bob's house now and I knew exactly where they lived so you know I turned the corner and went down to their house knowing full well he might not be in any shape to visit with me but I would at least be able to talk to his wife and ask if there's anything that I could do you know during this time and and all, and so I went up to the door and knocked on the door. Bob's son opened the door and, of course, immediately recognized me and invited me in and uh, let me sit in my regular spot on the couch and, and uh, went over there and sat down. But the first thing I noticed as soon as I walk into what was their living room is that Bob's sitting there in his regular chair. And I thought, OK, well, you must be feeling well enough to be sitting out here in the front room. And and so so I sat down on the couch. His wife peeked her head around the corner and said hi to me and, and you know, the usual type of greetings. And then Bob, kind of a gruff guy, Bob was just like, so what brings you out here, preacher? And uh, I said, well, Bob, actually you, you're the reason I'm coming out here today because I just heard that you'd spent the week in the hospital. And he gave me a confused look and said, what are you talking about? I said, I just heard on the radio that you were dismissed from the hospital after having been in there several days. I don't know what that was all about, but oh, I sure wish someone would have given me a heads up. And he's like, I wasn't in the hospital this week. And I'm like, well, now, isn't your name Bob so-and-so? And it's, and it's like, yeah. And I said, well, unless there's another Bob so-and-so, um, they're reporting it like you were in the hospital this week. And he said, oh, well, maybe it was talking about my son. And I'm like, I only knew of one son. His name wasn't Bob. And it was just like, um, I'm sorry. I'm really getting confused here. And he said, oh, you know, I've got got an older son. He lives over on the other side of town, the edge of town. Remember, this is a town of 3,000 people, you know, on the other side of town. And uh, maybe he was in the hospital. And I was like, so your son, Bob might have been in the hospital, but you don't know if he's been in the hospital? And he goes, I haven't talked to him for nine years. And now it's just like, okay, I don't know what's going on. You live in a small town. You haven't talked to your son for nine. And then as I'm trying to sort all this out, he offers up, he goes, I heard through the grapevine a couple years ago, he was having some heart issues. So maybe he was in the hospital for his heart. And now I'm just like, so you had some awareness of a heart problem, but you never talked to him about, you know, and I was just so confused. I never got to the bottom of it and figuring out why there was such a serious breakdown of communication and all this. But that was really my first exposure of just how unhealthy a family could actually be and I don't know what all contributed to that originally causing them to be at odds with one another and not to have talked to one another for nine years but that was the state of their family at that particular point really sad well I, I, I share that with you to say this in this short series this is only a three-part series But what I want to do is I want to talk about some of the key components that can go a long way in helping to ensure that that kind of a sad story does not become the story of your family. Um, Because that is, it's just tragic. It's more than sad, it's tragic. Today, one of the most important things is what we're going to talk about. One of the most important things needed to maintaining healthy relationships. It's forgiveness. If relationships in your family are going to have any chance of being what they can be and what they should be, there's got to be a bunch of forgiveness going on. Let me show you a couple of passages. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 31 and 32 says this, all bitterness Anger and wrath, shouting and slander must be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Now, there are multiple passages of Scripture that talk about this concept of how we need to forgive one another. Let me show you another. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 says, get along with each other, which is kind of like that that, uh, Romans passage we started the message out with. Get along with each other and forgive each other. In order to be able to get along with one another, forgiveness is a part of that. If someone does wrong to you, forgive that person because the Lord forgave you. As a matter of fact, I want you to see why I entitled the message what I did today. The title of today's message is Be Generous in Forgiveness. And that's in contrast to sprinkle a little forgiveness here, sprinkle a little forgiveness there in your relationships. No, that's not the way the Bible teaches that we are to approach our relationships. We are to approach them in such a way that we are generous with forgiveness. And so I want to show you the the first immediate passage that comes to my mind when I'm I think about the subject of the importance of forgiveness in relationships. It's found in Matthew chapter 18. Actually, the entire chapter seems to be talking about this subject. In the earlier verses that we're not going to cover today, Jesus is giving some words of instruction as to how to go about bringing reconciliation into a relationship when someone has sinned against you. So that's what Jesus just got done talking about. And then Peter, it prompts this question from Peter. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times... Could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. That's why I'm using the word generous in in the title of today's message. This is an interesting passage. Um, verses 21 and 22. It almost sounds like Peter is being a little bit uh, smart-alecky here, but I don't think he is. I I think this is an honest question that Peter is asking. Back in that day, it was the common rabbi's teaching that you needed to forgive someone three times. If someone wrongs you, you need to forgive them. If they wrong you again, you need to forgive them. If they wrong you a third time, you need to forgive them. If they wrong you a fourth time, you have no obligation to forgive them. That's the common um, Jewish teachers teaching back in that day. Three times is what your responsibility involved. So in putting together the thoughts, as Peter is trying to work his way through the concepts of reconciliation that Jesus just talked about and all of this, he's trying to define things better in his mind. And so he wants to know this. He wants to make it crystal clear about how often he should forgive someone. And so he brings up this number seven, seven times. And really what, what Peter is trying to define here is he's trying to define when is it right not to forgive? I mean, that really is what he's trying to get at. Okay. When have I done enough of the forgiveness stuff in a relationship that I can stop forgiving? And and so he uses the, the number seven, seven times, Peter probably figured he was going to get a pat on the back for suggesting seven because that was more than double what commonly um, what he had been taught as a kid. What all the rest of the apostles had been taught, you know, they had all been taught three times. And so Peter was doubling that number and adding one more for good measure. Seven times, but then uh, it probably really shocked Peter when Jesus responded by saying, no, not seven times. 70 times 7, which you don't need a calculator to figure that out, right? That's 490 times. Now, I don't think that Jesus was actually trying to give an exact legalistic number that we are to uh, forgive people for. I think the concept more is along the lines of, of uh, you know, just forgive and forgive and forgive again and forgive again and until it just becomes part of your nature, part of the way that uh, you treat people around you as you forgive them. Because somewhere along the line, I don't know if it will be 169 after that time, or maybe it'll be 238. Maybe it'll be once you've got to 344 times that you've forgiven someone, all of a sudden you're going to lose track and it's just going to start becoming more automatic to forgive people. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is, is driving toward here. He's not talking about a hard and fast number. Now, now, if you're talking about the coworker that is working down in the branch office in uh, Dallas, and you only see that coworker worker uh, like three times a year, and they kind of are an abrasive kind of person and say offensive things all the time. Um, you know, 490 times, that's going to give you plenty of opportunity to forgive. You could three times a year. If every time you're around them, they, they offend you and you forgive them, you're not going to use up all of those times, right? Um, but if you're talking about that 17-year-old that lives in your home with that attitude, You know, um, 490 times may not seem like enough, you know, to cover that, right? Or if you're talking about that husband, that every time you turn around, he's testing your patience, you know, with this or that. Then all of a sudden, 490 times, again, you know, may not seem like enough. But don't get too tied up. With the 70 times 7, the 490 number. Because I don't really think that that ultimately is what Jesus is trying to draw our attention to. Jesus is trying to say, you need to just keep on forgiving, Peter. You need to be a person who is generous with forgiveness. And that's consistent with other passages like the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, it's breaking down what uh, different elements of love, what love looks like. And in verse 5, it says this about love. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. So it doesn't keep track. I mean, if you really love someone in that word love, agape, that's the kind of love that should certainly be in your marriage. I mean, there's biblical passages that use that exact word, agape. uh, But it also ought to be in your family, with your kids, or with your parents. Love doesn't keep track of wrongs. And so the whole 490 thing, again, don't get all tied up with that. So let me ask, has someone said something or done something to you in the past that has hurt you? Perhaps that has hurt you deeply. I don't even need you to respond because I already know the answer. The answer is yeah. I mean, if you've lived any years at all, there's been someone that's hurt you. And, and especially if it was someone who was close to you, like in your own family, then the likelihood is they hurt you deeply. Because part of, that's part of the nature of being really close to people, like in a marriage or in a family. In order to be able to have those deep, meaningful relationships, one of the dynamics that just has to happen is you've got to put the walls down. You've got to lower your guard. Because as long as you keep the guard up, as long as you keep those walls there, you're only going to be able to get so close to people. So you've got to lower the guard. But in doing that, you're going to be making yourself vulnerable. And that means if someone takes a shot at you, it could really hurt. And that's why some of the deepest wounds are the wounds that come from the people who are closest to us. And that's why this topic is so relevant in talking about our homes, in our families. You know, with those living under our roof, but also those that used to live under our roof, our children. Or maybe our parents, we lived under their roof. You know, the close relationships in a family. Yeah, that's where the deep wounds can really come. When you and I, when we get hurt, it's at that time that we make a decision. Whether it is a conscious decision or whether it is a subconscious decision, we are making a decision. Either we choose to hold on to the pain which what that looks like is you're going to keep replaying it in your mind. You're going to keep it vivid. You're going to keep it fresh. You're going to talk about it. You're going to be thinking about it. It's the sort of thing that during the quiet moments, like when you're laying in bed at night and you can't sleep, this is the sort of thing you're going to be thinking about. That's that's what holding on to the pain and the hard feelings, you know, Uh, involving someone who has wronged you or offended or hurt you. So you're making that choice. Either you're going to hold on to it or you're choosing to let go of it and to trust God um, to take it from there and to bring the healing and, and all that's needed as you move on in your life. For relationships to thrive, let alone survive, in the close environment of a home, Forgiveness needs to be a frequent feature in those relationships. It just, it has to be there. For a marriage to be a good marriage, both the husband and wife are going to need to be good forgivers. It's just, it's necessary for the marriage to be what it is. Now, I'm not saying that because I read that in a book somewhere. I've had over 40 years of married life myself. So I've seen plenty of opportunity. I've had to apply that principle. Now, Colette, she's gotten off easy because, you know, she married me. But, but uh, no, I mean, I, I don't care how, you know, I, I remember talking to a neighbor, Jack, and his wife, Ramona, and uh, uh, just lived over the hill from us. When we were growing up. Our families were real tight. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I asked him one time, I said, how often do you and Ramona fight? you know because i always saw whenever ramona raised her voice he headed out into the the hog pen or out into the shed you know or something something like that you know he 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 he, and he said oh we never fight and uh, he goes you you picked up on it whenever whenever she starts getting steamed i just go out until she cools off and then i come back you know the reality of the matter is You know, we all, there's always going to be friction because no two people are exactly alike. And there's going to be times that that we're going to get on each other's nerves and stuff like that. And, And a lot of times, you know, it's certainly not intentional, but unfortunately, once in a while, it can be intentional. But this is why it is so important in a marriage for a marriage to be what it needs to be. We need to be generous in our forgiveness because if you're not, there's going to be a buildup of hard feelings, and that, those hard feelings are, are going to develop into bitterness, and the root of bitterness is going to spread in your life, and it's going to cause you to be a frustrated person, and it's going to cause anger to flare up sometimes directed at someone who has nothing to do with what the central issue relationship was that the problem originated in, and it may be a total innocent bystander, another family member, or somebody else. But, but that is the dynamic of what happens with unresolved offenses and nursing grudges and, and things along those lines. we got to move beyond it. Paul said this, In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, he wasn't specifically limiting himself to talking about this subject, but this subject is a part of the umbrella of application of what he is saying here. He makes this statement. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So the real issue that you need to get to here is what are you spending time dwelling on? What is it that you're reflecting and replaying in your mind over and over? And and if it is an offense, if it is you know, those, those uh, uh, raw feelings that came as a result of how somebody offended you or said something very hurtful to you, and that's what you're replaying over and over and over again, then uh, that's what your mind is on, then you're going to be living in accordance to that, the deeds of the flesh. You won't be living in accordance with the Spirit and how the Spirit would be guided. You need to be thinking more on, on the good and the wholesome and the positive things, you know, and, and for the Spirit to really be thriving and prompting and leading you in a positive direction. In fact, the very next verse continues the insight here. It says, The mind of sinful man is death. See, that's where it's going to go. If you're going to be dwelling on all these negative, hurtful type things, then that is not leading you in a healthy direction. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. We like the sound of that, peace. We like that inner calm to be a part of our life. But if you're nursing a grudge, inner calm is not a part of what you're experiencing. And the longer you nurse that grudge, the less of any kind of calmness that you're going to be experiencing inside your life, inside your heart. And, And so... You know, the question is, what are you spending your time thinking about? If you really need to evaluate, am I holding a grudge? Am I, am I holding hard feelings against someone? You need, need to think about, what do I think about in my idle time? How often do I replay the memories of how so-and-so did what they did or said what they said? How often do I catch myself talking about that? in a negative way, and putting that person down, making sure other people realize what a scoundrel that person is. How often is that happening? Because if it is happening, then, yeah, you're nursing a grudge. You have not let go of it. An unforgiving spirit, one that keeps a record of wrongs, one that nurses hard feelings, one that is determined not to let so-and-so off the hook, That is the person that loses their joy and becomes a sour person and experiences a hardness within their life, within their heart. You know some people like that. If you think about it, you know some people like that. We don't want to be people like that, though. And that's why forgiveness is so essential. Okay, so we've kind of been dancing all around this so far. So let's just break it down and be very clear. Why should we practice forgiveness? Two reasons that I want to give you. Number one, because resentment doesn't work. Okay, just plain and simple. Holding a grudge does not work. We kid ourselves into thinking, yeah, well, I'm making him pay for what he did. You know who's paying? You're the one that's paying. I mean, he, he may be totally oblivious to the fact that you're feeling and thinking such ill thoughts, his direction, and even if he is aware of it, he could probably care less out of sight, out of mind, and he doesn't even think about it. But boy, you're thinking about it. You see, nursing, that sort of a thing, it's like a cancer. And the thing is that it is so gradual in the way that it takes up residence in your heart and the way that it spreads through your being, that oftentimes you're one of the last ones to notice what's happening. People around you see it long before you actually see the effect that it's having in your life. Resentment, is so much is focused on the past. It replays things over and over and over, keeping those things fresh so you don't forget any of the details But the thing is, it can't change the past. It doesn't have the power to change the past. And each time it's replayed in your mind or replayed in your talking to someone else, um, it's getting stronger. It's getting bigger inside you. It's devouring you. And like I said, others will notice that. They'll pick up on your anger, your flashes of anger, sometimes coming out of nowhere and directed at someone that had nothing to do with it they'll pick up on it you know before you actually see it your critical spirit you know how how you don't say positive things very much anymore because over the years more and more you've been becoming more critical and nitpicky in basically most things around you your personality becomes more and more sour I mean, there may come a time where you begin to see that. It may dawn, or it might be so gradual, that's kind of like aging. You know, when you go see someone that graduated the same year from you, you look at them and like, whoa, man, they got old, you know, and you don't think that about yourself because you saw yourself every day, right? So you don't notice the changes happening within you. Well, that same dynamic, you know, can happen here. But people around you, yeah, yeah, they'll... they'll pick up on this and a lot of those people would be like I don't want anything to do with that and so they'll intentionally keep their distance from you maybe not understanding what's going on what the real dynamics are but what they see is just something that doesn't draw them in so, so th- this resentment does not work how do we deal with it? prevention is the best way that's why you've got to nip this in the bud right away now, it's not like, it, well, if it was something from a few years ago, it's not like that you can eventually discover freedom and be freed from it, because you can, but it's just going to involve more work, you know, to do that. And that's why prevention, dealing with it when things happen, when you are offended, when a person does that thing that they do or, or says that offensive thing that they say. This is, this is why the Bible says forgiveness is so critical in our lives. It's for our own good. This is one of those topics that certainly is what the prophet Isaiah is referencing in Isaiah 48. When he says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. God has always had your good in mind. Whenever you look at any of the commands, any of the teachings that are found in the word of God, it is there for your blessing and your benefit to help you to be able to live the life that God intends for you to live. Now, if you disregard it, you think you know better and you're going to go a different route, well, that's going to be to your own demise because you're going to be going contrary to God's will and God's will and word is for Your sake, it's for your benefit. And if you're going a different direction, then there's not the kind of outcome down that road that somehow you've been um, deceived into thinking that there is. There's not that kind of an outcome, it's a detrimental outcome. But, like I say, we're resistant. We continue to nurse grudges because we don't want to, in any way, let someone off the hook. They don't deserve to be let off the hook. We don't want to pretend like it didn't happen. We don't want to send that message, you know, and so we're going to continue to remember it. We don't want to come across in a way like we're condoning that behavior, you know, and so for all those reasons and more, um, we continue to nurse a grudge. And it's sad because where that path has taken us is not a healthy path. The second thing as to why we should practice forgiveness is because God has forgiven us. This is brought up over and over and over in Scripture. In fact, in our main passage in Matthew 28, where Peter says, how many times? Seven times? And Jesus says, 70 times seven. The, the, The verses that follow that, the next 12 verses, verses 23 to 35, Jesus tells this story about a king who is settling in accounts with his servants. And he finds this one servant that owes the king a debt of 10,000 talents. And so he calls for him to come forward and says, pay back everything that you owe. Now, we don't appreciate how much 10,000 talents, how big of a debt that really is. Some of us in our Bible, we might have a little footnote. And if you read that footnote, it says millions of dollars. That, that's not even touching it you know what 10,000 talents are. One talent was the equivalent of 6,000 days wages, okay? That's one talent, and there were 10,000 talents. So you don't need to remember this, but if you do the math, take 10,000 talents times 6,000 days, you're going to end up with this huge number. Divide that by 365, the number of days in a year, Now you're going to be able to grasp how huge the debt was that this guy owed the king. He owed him over 164,000 years wages. Actually, the number is 164,383 years wages. That's if he worked seven days a week and paid every penny to his debt, which is unrealistic. You wouldn't be able to do that. But that's even given that. It, w- it was a debt that he, he, that he could no way possibly ever pay back this debt. And so the king says, pay back everything you owe, or I'm throwing you into prison. And the guy starts pleading with the king, please have mercy on me. I'll pay you back everything that I owe. And the king is moved with compassion and says, you know what? I'm canceling your debt. You don't owe me anything. It's like, whoa, incredible. You would think this guy would be walking on cloud nine, right? You would think he would walk away from the king whistling a tune, saying hi to everybody he meets in such a great mood. But instead, what happens? He bumps into someone who owes him a debt. And the amount is 100 denarii. That's... 100 days wages, that's about 14 weeks worth of salary if working every day of the week. I mean, that's a manageable debt. He goes up and grabs this guy by the throat saying, pay back what you owe me. And the guy acts much the same way that he had, starts pleading with him and says, please have mercy on me. I'll pay you back everything, which he was doable. It was doable for him to do that. But the guy has no mercy on him, says, no. Throws him into prison. Word gets back to the king. The king calls this original servant over to him and says, Whoa, wait a minute. I forgave you that humongous debt, and you couldn't forgive the small debt? I'm revoking what I did earlier. You now owe me everything that we talked about earlier. You see, what this passage goes on and teaches, Peter is asking the question, how many times should I forgive someone who wrongs me? And and the, the lesson that Jesus ends up teaching from that is that he is saying, Peter, think about how much God has forgiven you. Now you go do accordingly. That's the lesson here. This is why we are to practice forgiveness, is because God has forgiven us. The gospel is not just about receiving grace. It is a matter of giving grace as well. God's grace flows to us, but God's grace is to flow through us into the lives of others. You say, yeah, but people don't deserve that. The people that have wronged me, they don't deserve that. Well, I'm not going to argue with you. They probably don't deserve it. But you don't deserve to be forgiven by God either, and neither do I. And that's the point. Psalm 103 says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You see, God hasn't treated us the way we deserve. And so we need to take that grace and we need to extend it to others. You see, biblically, there's a definite connection between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. That's what Matthew 18 is talking about. That's what the two earlier passages we looked at, if you look at the way both of those end, It says, just as God forgave you in Christ. See, it's drawing that connection. You think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's right there, right in the middle of that little 60-second prayer that Jesus used as a teaching prayer. I want to end the message by giving you a helpful visual in regards to forgiveness. It's helpful for me. So when you look back at the original passage in Matthew 18, I've underlined and bolded the word forgive. Peter's asking the question, how many times should I forgive someone? Okay, So you got the word, it's translated forgive here. I'm going to show you another passage, and you're going to think, okay, this is weird. It's a totally different word. The reality is it's the same exact word, Greek letter for Greek letter. It's the exact same. I will forgive them. It's the same exact word that's being used in this passage. This is going back over three years earlier when Jesus originally called for uh, Peter and Andrew to be followers of his. Jesus said this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then it says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. That word that's translated left is the exact same word that is translated forgive here. It's going to seem a little strange initially. It's like, wait a minute, how's the same word being used? Well, create the visual in your mind of what's happening here. Peter and Andrew, they're done fishing. It's sometime early in the morning. It's time now to fold their nets up and and all. And, And Jesus walks by and says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Peter and Andrew, they're acquainted with Jesus and they respond to his calling. They let go of their nets. They drop their nets and they become followers of Jesus. They walk away from the nets. And that is the dynamic that we are called on in regards to the offenses that people have directed our direction, the way that they have heard us. Some of us have been carrying that around way too long. Some of you today, as I've been talking about being offended and being hurt deeply, some of you immediately started thinking about something that happened in your family three or four years ago. Or maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago. But boy, it's vivid because you remember it like it was yesterday and how hurtful it still is to this day. And you see part of what the issue here may be? is you've never let go of it. You've been hanging on to that hurt all this time. This is your way of not condoning that behavior, not letting them off the hook, not freeing them from the consequences. The reality is all this time, you've been hurting yourself the most. You haven't really been hurting them. You've been hurting yourself. It's time to let go, to drop it, to be freed of that, and to really direct your attention to being what the Lord is calling you to be. That's what forgiveness is. And so during this time of communion, as as we take the bread and we eat it in the cup and we drink it, and we're reminded of the body and the blood of Jesus and how he has forgiven us of all of our wrongs, examine your heart. Is there some forgiveness you need to extend? Are there some things you need to let go of that you've been hanging on way too long. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, how personal it is, how relevant this whole topic is, perhaps far more so than what we realized coming in here today. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in our life. I pray that uh, we would not approach All of this like a sponge, just soaking up your grace and mercy and keeping it to ourselves. But rather that we will be exactly what you want us to be. That we would be conduit, sending forth your grace and mercy into the lives of others. Other people who are undeserving, just like we are. Father, I pray for that because it'll free us to be the people that you want us to be. But most of all, Lord, I pray that because I know it'll please you and it'll bring you glory. And that is our ultimate aim. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.